0: This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil reflect on the Republicans' new oversight committee, conspiracy theories in the GOP, Japan's military buildup, and whether it matters that members of the Supreme Court like each other. Now let's go to The Lab.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker. I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who is professor of political science at North Central College. Hey Bill, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. Happy first day of class, Phil. Your your first day. You were in the class. You were molding minds. You were you were. I'm sure you were brilliant today.
1: I think I changed some lives today, going over the syllabus. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> no. The first day is always interesting. It's like I'm I'm kind of excited to get back into it. But it's like the first day. It's always hard to get a read on, you know, what the class is going to be like. But uh, yeah, I'm teaching some fun classes this semester,
0: so I'm kind of excited about it. We mentioned this briefly last week, but the the first week of if you're a professor, the first week you're back in the classroom is so physically and mentally exhausting. It just now I'm over it. It's kind of like, you know, we're like athletes that way. Like once you get back <laughs> playing football and basketball, you get back in playing shape like I'm back in playing shape, But you clearly by your appearance, you know, you look tired, your hair's falling out like you're you're in the midst of being exhausted in that first week. Most of that stuff is totally unrelated to the first week, though. <laughs>
1: Speaking of, of comparing ourselves to prime athletes, I, we haven't talked about how you have now arranged a setup where you're sitting in like a leather recliner basically while you podcast. This is, I, I'm inspired by your uh, innovation.
0: This is, this is great. Yeah. I've, we, you know, we've got equipment or I've got equipment, same you do as well. One of these arms that you can put your microphone in and move it around. And I finally have come up with this system where I can sit in a comfortable chair and have the reclining arm right in front of me. So, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm more contemplative when I'm comfortable. So this is, this has been, I, this makes me happier than, than it should, how you know my setup is the podcast setup. So you've, you've got a, you've got it as well, you're sitting down, but you're not as comfortable as I am.
1: I know. It's only a matter of time until you're like in a robe and have like one of the beer helmets and like a, a plate of nachos while you're podcasting, too.
0: It's surprising I'm not eating nachos right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were going to talk, you know, we're gonna, we've are we got a bunch of really big topics. Before we dive into those, we said we might or actually, why don't you should we uh, should we remind everybody how to stay connected first and then talk about Joe Biden and his secret documents?
1: Yeah, why not? So, uh, yeah. So, as, as usual, I'm gonna you know plug the website, which is thepoliticslab.com. Uh, and you can go there and find all of our old episodes. Uh, but also importantly, um, each episode page has uh, relevant reading and articles. And so we've got I, four articles. We're doing four topics today. And each one of them, there's an article that kind of inspired the conversation. So if you want to read more about the things that we're talking about today, you can find all that at thepoliticslab.com and click on this week's episode. And then you can also find us on Facebook at The Politics Lab and on Twitter at Politics Lab Pod.
0: So, so, Phil, Joe Biden, hes all of these documents, this has not not been very good. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but um, it's sort of, this is the whole story of Joe Biden and, and the classified documents in his garage and in his house. Um, we, we sort of feel a little bit that it's overblown at this point, and we're going to give it some time. We'll probably return to it when we've got a bit more uh, more data. But I don't know, just a sort of preliminary reaction to Joe Biden hiding, hiding documents in his Corvette. What do we think about this? <laughs>
1: well, I mean, it happens to all of us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think the the, I feel like part of the reason why we're waiting a little bit is that this has been sort of discussed a lot, but I, I mean, the, the, the differences between what Trump did and what Biden has done are pretty significant. I mean, they both involve top secret documents. The difference is that, you know, Trump was told he had them and refused and, you know, fought the government on it. And Biden is the one who self-reported that these things happened. And so um, there are important differences. But I mean, at the same time, it also should be said, like, it's it's a big deal. Like when we talked about how top secret documents and, and proper care of top, top secret doc, documents is important. Um, that's true for Joe Biden. Biden as well. I mean, it's 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 sloppy. It shouldn't happen. Um, it, it seems like a gift to, to Trump and the right. I mean, particularly as the government's poten- potentially getting ready to bring charges on some of this. I mean, it's just really uh, poor timing. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm all in for the idea that like, yeah, there should be somebody should look into this just like they're looking into Trump, although it feels different on the, on the surface. What, what about you?
0: Yes, similarly, right? Uh you know, it's an unforced error by Biden and his team and and I, it makes me wonder to you know, to what extent do a lot of these ex-presidents and high-ranking officials have a random number Of of top secret documents around, I'd be curious to know is this something that you know you're going if you went and looked at George W. Bush's ranch, would there be a few documents here or there? It's it's hard to know, but it's an unforced error, particularly given the uh, the context in which all of this is happening. Um, So that's bad, and and I I feel for Merrick Garland because he's now put in this impossible position of having to appoint a special counsel. I mean, you have to remove all you know appearances of of, of, you know impropriety and and being biased, and so it puts him in an awkward position. Um, um, it also just feeds the worst part of our echo chambers right now. where, you know, it, it, which sort of frustrates me. and I think that also probably part of the reason. That we're not having this conversation. I heard a really good description of of what of the difference between the two cases that I thought was useful. And he described it as somebody forg- somebody has a library book, right? So a library book goes missing, um, and Joe Biden realizes that he's got the library book and he returns the library book and you know pays a small fine. Uh, Donald Trump is informed that he's got the library book and he says, "No, I don't have it." And then he says, "It's my book. And I'm not giving it back." And then the librarian has to come in and break down the doors and get it. So I, mean, I think there are a lot of there are some really really important differences between the two cases, also some similarities. Uh, but I get the sense that our political system is not going to be able to to understand and appreciate that nuance. It'll just feed into some of the worst and ugliest parts of our, our, our political discourse at this point.
1: Yeah, we're not great on nuance and context right now. Yeah, I mean, I, you were talking, I think that, I, and again, we said we weren't going to talk about it, and then here we are talking about it. But yeah, I mean, it feels like if it weren't for the Trump story, the Biden story would be like a nothing story. Like, I don't imagine it would really be a story at all. Like, he came across these top secret documents, reported it, turned them, you know, classified documents, rather, um, reported it and turned them in. And I think that wouldn't have even really made the news cycle if it weren't for the, the you know, what had happened, how it had played out with with uh, with. Trump. And that, that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, important, but it's, yeah, it, it's it's hard because they're, they're both, I mean, it is a serious issue, but it's important to recognize there are real differences, like you said, between the Trump one and the, and the Biden one, as far as we know at this point.
0: That's right. Other little bit of news before we jump in is that you said uh, we. When do we reach the debt ceiling? It's sometime. Is it this week or next week? I think it's
1: tomorrow. I think tomorrow, tomorrow, Thursday. Yeah. That and so we'll hit the debt ceiling and we won't default because we can do all sorts of fun accounting and move stuff around. But yeah, the 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 clock is ticking before we get to a a default on our our debt, and I don't know. I I I mean, it it feels. I don't know. We've always somehow figured out a way to to come to a solution on it in the past, but the the speaker battle doesn't bode well for. I, I don't know. I mean, are there enough like reasonable concern like Republicans to side with Democrats to pass some sort of debt ceiling, or is this like a a, a party tool they're going to use?
0: I think they will get it done. Uh, and I think we'll go through the same sort of cycle. And it may be a little bit more obnoxious and noisy this time. But I, I you hear good things out of a lot of the sen- more sensible Republicans on this particular issue. So, you know, I, I think it's gonna. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. But my guess is, like you said, they'll get it worked out. Um, I wonder whether they're going to have to, the Democrats are going to have to make some concessions or whether Joe Biden will. I mean, there may be some of that. Biden has said, we're not negotiating. You're not, we're not being held hostage over the debt ceiling. And I think that's the right position. They may ultimately have to cave on some of that. But it's just stupid, right? You know, both of these topics are sort of stupid, right? And that's why it's frustrating <laughs> to talk about stupid <laughs> politics. And I think the debt ceiling is going to reveal, once again, the really, really, stupid side of American politics we can kind of grind down on you.
1: Well, this is a, it's always a good time to 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 note as as we typically do when we talk about this from a comparative lens that we are one of only a handful of countries in the world who do it this way. Other countries assume that if the government passes a spending bill that they intend to, you know, fund that spending bill. And so if if you if you pass a spending bill it is assumed that you will take on debt to to spend that money if necessary. We're the only well, we're not the only. We're one of a handful of countries that has to pass to spend the money and then also pass a separate bill to borrow the money for the bill that we've already voted on to spend. So it's it's just dumb. It should be what, done away with. The debt ceiling debate should not be a debate in the country.
0: That's right. You want to have a conversation about, you know, broad conversation about debt and budgets, right? That That's a fine conversation to have. But, but yeah, it's just, again, it's just silliness. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we should we transition? Speaking of of uh, Republicans and oversight and and sensible behavior, should we jump all into our first topic?
1: Let's do it. Let's jump in.
0: Uh. All right, so last week, House Republicans voted to create a select subcommittee that they say will launch a far reaching examination of the agencies and people that carried out the partisan and what they say are frivolous investigations of Donald Trump. The subcommittee will have the power to investigate any federal agency that collects information about Americans and even instances where the DOJ is carrying out an ongoing criminal investigation. Uh, Republicans have argued that Attorney General Merrick Garland has abused his investigatory powers. And unnecessarily targeted conservatives. They compare their work to the highly respected Senate Church Committee uh, formed by Democrats in 1975. It was a bipartisan committee to investigate abuses by the CIA, FBI, uh, the National Security Agency and the rest of the intelligence community. Uh, Democrats and a lot of historians and political scientists see darker historical parallels. They compare the Republican Committee to the Red Scare days of Joseph McCarthy or the investigations carried out in the 1930s and the 1940s by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, Both are now seen as ugly chapters in American American history where Congress leveled unfounded allegations in pursuit of sensational headlines and non-existent communist infiltrators. Phil, what do you make of this oversight committee? Uh, Will this be a serious effort at congressional oversight or are we heading towards a Joseph McCarthy-like examination into deep state conspiracies?
1: I I mean, I... This is, so the, this is where, you know, we talked about how we don't, we don't live in a world of like nuance and context, but this is a perfect example of where nuance and context matters. I, I think that like, like, you know, the, the church committee, stuff. It, the idea that um, there could be a committee that actually looks into improper use of, of government is a very democratic idea, right? There should be accountability. There should be the ability Congress is supposed to have oversight over this sort of stuff. And so I think in principle, then this this could actually you know this this could be um, you know a useful thing but in the context of, of where we currently are. And, the I mean, this was like part of the negotiation with Kevin McCarthy about, you know, that this sort of, this committee was going to be um, uh, created. The, the intention is not that. The intention is sort of witch-hunting. It's, it is beginning with a conclusion already, that government has unfairly targeted conservatives, and they're looking to find the people who have done that. This is This is where the whole partisanship, the toxic partisanship aspect of things comes into play because you have, I mean, it is, the idea is if government is targeting conservatives, that is partisan and it begins with that point. And so then we're going to go after government, um, you know, it's, it becomes like this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it, it, this worries me. I mean, I think this is more, you know, farcical than actual serious, uh, government, um, investigation but i i mean people thought that mccarthy was sort of farcical early on as well what what do you what do you think are you worried about this i i don't imagine you think this is going to be a serious investigation but but no no uh, only
0: yeah it's it's similar like I, i don't i don't get the sense it's going to be seriously it will be uh politically savvy, right? I mean, they will they will get lots of headlines, uh, especially in in conservative media circles, it'll be really, really effective there. Um, no, I don't think it's gonna be serious. And only because when they've suggested what they're going after, it's not it's not serious, right? So if if one of the potential investigations is Anthony Fauci, right? If it's going after Merrick Garland, if you're going after the deep state, right? I mean, that's the other one where they're talking about um, you know, layers of conspiracy and and corruption throughout the government. And we've we've talked a bit about how populism, you know, offers these simple solutions to complex problems. And and for many of these populist Republicans, it's really that, you know, government has gotten too big uh and they're not really doing good work. And so we have to investigate and figure out and, and expose all of them. And so no, I I don't have a whole lot of faith that it will be done in a in a in Integ- you know, with a lot of integrity. But t- to your first point, I, I there absolutely is a role for Congress in oversight, right? I mean, there I think there could be some useful conversations. Uh, you know, there's been some discussion about whether there should be a, a hearing on Afghanistan. Um, again, it depends on who conducts that. I don't think Jim Jordan is the right person to have a sensible conversation about, about Afghanistan, but I think that's a reasonable, uh, so there are some reasonable questions to be asked, right? You know, how was that decision made? How was it handled? Um, you know, I I wouldn't, I don't think making the president feel a bit uncomfortable on that issue is a bad thing. Um, but I just think that what we're seeing, the preview of what this committee is going to do, it's it's going to be silly and stupid. I mean, I don't know. Is this a good point to, to play the little audio clip that we have?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> do you so want to, you want to, but go
0: ahead. Yeah. So this is, I'm trying to, what, I forgot the guy's name. What, do you have the name there? Let me look it yeah, up. Yeah. It's
1: uh, Zinky, right? Is that his name?
0: Yes, Zinke, who's who's sort of talking about this committee on, on the congressional floor. I guess that's all they need to know.
1: <laughs> okay, here we go.
0: Yeah, gentleman from Montana is recognized for two minutes.
2: Mr. Speaker, I rise today in support of a select committee to investigate the weaponization of the federal government. Something I have a lot of experience firsthand. I proudly served as the 52nd Secretary of Interior, and despite the deep state's repeatedly attempts to stop me, I stand before you as a duly elected member of the United States Congress and tell you that a deep state exists and is perhaps the strongest covert weapon the left has against the American people. There is no doubt the federal government deep state coordinates with liberal activists and uses politicians, and willing media to carry their water. The deep state runs secret messaging campaigns with one goal in mind to increase its power to censor and persuade the American people. Dark money groups funded by liberal billionaires and foreign investors funnel money to shell organizations and repeatedly attempt to destroy the American West. In many cases they want to wipe out the American cowboy completely remove public access to our lands, and turn Montana into a national park. They want to control our land and our lifestyle. Mr. Speaker, I'd like to submit a five-part series of investigative articles by the Capital Research Center entitled Arabella's...
0: (laughs) All right, so it's just, I mean, that is sort of, it's, again, the worst type of nonsense conspiracy theory. But it's really interesting how he frames that, right? So he's going after the deep state as if it is communism, right? That's sort of the frame that that he's using to say, this is this disease that has permeated our government, right? Uh, Reagan talked about that. Communism is a disease that you catch and you can't be around it. And so now the deep state is this danger. And does the US government have a big bureaucracy? Of course. Is it some sort of cabal? organized to you know prevent the cowboys from living their cowboy life no that it's just again it's ludicrous right the, the sort of arguments but this is what i think a lot of that uh committee will look like and and i think it's going to be it's going to be embarrassing internationally uh to see the united states carry all like the congress carry that out but i think you know it's, it's going to play well in in conservative news circles i mean what do you think about this 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 talk of the deep state and you know not you're not allowed to be a cowboy anymore
1: Right, right. Well, that's, I mean, when I think about the deep state, you know, when I'm involved in my deep state meetings, we talk about cowboys most of the time. So, yeah. uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, the, I mean the deep state stuff, it, I mean, when you, when you get into the, the, like when you read people who are critiquing this or concerned about the, the, the direction of this committee, it's partly because of, like you said, the, the vagary, the vagueness of this, right. When you throw up the deep state, which is so amorphous as to like, I don't know that anyone, the fact that somebody thinks it's about targeting cowboys and somebody else thinks it's about, you know, whatever targeting Donald Trump or whatever, like, no, I don't like if I said to you, if I like went out onto the street and asked people, you know, we're going to investigate the the deep state, where should we begin? I don't know that anyone even really knows what is meant by the deep state, right? So that vagueness is what opens the door to be able to use it to target political enemies or whatever the topic is of of the day. That's why it's so different from like you were saying, if, if there were a committee on You know, Afghanistan, for instance, it begins with this notion of, you know, Afghanistan did not go particularly the the exit from Afghanistan didn't go particularly well. And maybe maybe the, the Biden administration did something wrong. But even if they didn't, it's worth investigating to sort of, you know, learn the lessons to make sure this doesn't happen again. And so Uh, to go into something with that sort of motive about improving, making sure that this goes better in the future is different from sort of settling scores. And and I know that they would argue that we want to make sure this doesn't happen again, like that, that the, you know, whatever, whoever the deep state is doesn't target a sitting president because they disagree with them, but it's, it's a different thing, right? I mean, it's, it's where it's caught so caught up in partisan. I mean, at this point it is, it is about uh, like, being upset that government is doing its job because right. the go- job the government is doing is uh, is uh, uh, unfortunate or uh, problematic for you know your pat- particular reasons and so um, yeah that vagueness is what is concerning. I, I went back today and was looking at some of uh, Joseph McCarthy's like speeches and that what was fascinating is the language that he was using was really similar, like you know critiquing mm-hmm. Truman for being for putting party over um na- over like the national interest or you know putting like partisan politics first it's the same sort of argument that's being made now by people about the deep state which is that like that the government's not doing the you know the work of of the u.s it's doing the work of the democratic party and so it's so vague that you can make anything sort of fit that that notion, it, it it works great because if the government does anything in line with Democratic Party principles, it's you know biased as opposed to this is just how the government works, right? When certain parties win, and anyway, yeah, it, it's it's the I don't know. You should have sort of clear principles and clear issues that you're investigating that you begin with, and I, I don't know that anyone can actually clearly define for me what the deep state issue is.
0: Which is, like you said, it's why it makes it such a beautiful other to target, uh, because it's one thing if you if you argue that the government is too big, right? That that used to be, or that it sort of is the conservative argument that. Big government is ineffective and it's inefficient and sort of Adam Smithian, right? You want a smaller, more efficient government. That's that's not the argument of the deep state. The deep state is that these actors are in there and they are using uh, the mechanisms of the state to target conservatives, right? And and so in that way, it's it's useful that it's ambiguous because it can be anything and everything. Um, and it, yeah, that's really fascinating to think that the language that Joseph McCarthy was using had some parallels, right? Because I think we see this plays, you know, this history plays itself over and over and over again and, and yeah that, that, i think that suggests that this is this is sort of dangerous
1: the other aspect of it that, that is that, that matters is that when you start with a vague premise like this, you're guaranteed to find the thing you're looking yeah. for, because if, right. if you're not specific about what it is you're looking for, you're just looking for the government, quote unquote, targeting conservatives, then you can point to, you know, whatever the IRS audited a certain number of conservatives. And so we found it, right? We can prove that the government is biased against conservatives because we didn't define the thing we were looking yeah. for um, when we set out. And so it's it's it is set up to be political showmanship as opposed to actual like governmental reform. And, and yeah, it's, I mean, we're talking about why it's, 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 um, uh, sort of you know bad oversight but uh, we really should also i mean it, it, the real concern is that it can go down the road of you know uh, mccarthyism where it it, it yeah. like that, i mean this will if it, going down this road and calling people to testify and i mean this will ruin people's lives in the same way that people who are just doing their job will um face the the you know the, i don't know will bear the brunt of this you know republican uh, attempt to track down the deep state and and that's it's it's bad for individuals it's bad for government, it's it's just problematic um, all over.
0: We saw a little bit of that with Trump's attacking of you know the election, right? He he would go after specific individuals, and you saw those individuals, uh, you know, their physical safety be threatened. You know, they're they're all over the media unjustly. So it's 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 really messy. This may be a good transition. Should we should we talk a bit about uh, conspiracy theories? Because I think this all connects to the the broader philosophy that's that's undergirding uh, conservative thought right now.
1: Yeah, I like this. So so building off of this idea of of you know Republican um, oversight. Let's talk a little bit about an article from The Atlantic this week by Brian Kloss, who's a political scientist at the London School of Economics. So uh, Kloss argues that uh, America's woes aren't just due to political polarization, as many people claim, uh, but instead to a booming and, and flourishing belief in conspiracy theories, in particular On the conservative right in in America. So he he says, you know, other countries have polarization, but America's dysfunction looks different than other polarized um, countries. Instead, Kloss argues that uh, America's polarization is irrational and that it's due to um, a one sided belief in conspiracy theories. He he points to uh, some fascinating statistics. So I'm just going to read a little excerpt from this article. So according to YouGov polling, a third of Americans believe that a small group of People secretly runs the world. A third of Americans. While just 18% believe the same in the United Kingdom. So he's he's writing from the UK and sort of comparing, you know, Britain has been dysfunctional as well, but not nearly the same amount. So um, similarly, 9% of Americans think that COVID-19 is a fake disease. Not we're not talking about like it's not dangerous. They don't believe it's actually a real thing. In Britain, that figure just 3%. 17% of Americans agree with the statement that, quote, a secret group of Satan worshiping pedophiles has taken control of parts of the U S government and mainstream U S media. 17%. That's, you know, not quite, but close to one in five, right? That's like one in six Americans who who think that. So, um, Uh, the the difference between the U S and Britain is that in Britain, uh, Kloss points out political leaders tend to quickly repudiate conspiracies, but in the U S it has become a defining feature of Republican leadership. And he goes on to say that alone polarization is damaging, but manageable. But when polarization merges with deranged conspiracy theories, then democratic breakdown becomes far more likely. One purpose of democratic government is to allow citizens to solve problems through compromise without resorting to violence. Yeah. <laughs> modern Republican conspiracy policies undermine those aspects, solving problems, compromising and avoiding violence. He says to solve a problem, you first must agree it exists. So, Bill, it's not surprising that conspiracy theories catch on. We've talked about this in the past. There are these like exciting stories, like they help make sense of a a world that doesn't make sense or that's really complicated. It gives like a simple answer to things. Um, It's not surprising that people get hooked into conspiracy theories, but I'm flabbergasted by some of those stats. I, where should we start on this? I mean, this fits in really well to the, yeah. the previous topic. Where, where do you want to go well, with it?
0: I think especially the, how things have changed were, uh, conspiracy theorists are now at the center of of the Republican Party. I mean, we've the United States is all actually humanity is always, you know, we we find conspiracy theories appealing, but in politics, they always operated on the margins, right? So they were, you know, there were always those, you know, post-9/11, you know, conspiracy theorists, but they weren't, they weren't part of the the mainstream discourse about politics. And and what Trump did is he changed all of that, right? He enabled all of these voices to suddenly be. You know, pulling the levers of power. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was somebody who believed it, or, you know, kind of talked about 9 11 conspiracy, somebody who's talked about the deep state, all of these conspiracy theories, you know, all of that. She is now a central player on some major committees, national security committees. Right. Um, all right. So you see the way in which those who espouse these conspiracy theories are no longer on the margins, they are at the center. And when you had Donald Trump as president, he was the most powerful person in the United States. So that hasn't always been the case, you know, and that that change is really, really important. But I think what I liked most about this article was the comparative Analysis with with Britain. And, and that, you know, there are, are conspiracy theories in Great Britain, but they're not nearly as pervasive and they're not in government. And he talked about one instance. So this last week there was a, a British member of Parliament who was tweeting or, or some statement about COVID and it being the greatest host uh, hoax since the Holocaust or something like that. Um, and that the party you know, across the board, all parties condemned him. The Conservative Party kicked him out, right? So, when somebody behaves in that irrational, irresponsible way in the United Kingdom, the parties moderate that discourse and say, you can't be part of this, this political party. You you do not represent what we want to be. In the Republican Party, you get, you know, elevated to a higher committee, the more outrageous, the more, you know, conspiratorial you, ha- you become. So, it's such a sort of fascinating contrast where you've got you know, you've got polarization in both countries, you know, d- sharp politics playing out, but but the lack of conspiracy, acceptance of conspiracy theories in the United Kingdom really separates them from the the bonkers that is the U.S. political system. So, it's it's terrifying, right, that that these individuals now have their hands on the lever of power and this is going to be part of mainstream discourse. I, I don't know, what about you? Do you feel better about this than I do? No, not at all.
1: No, I mean, I think I, I again, I think back to uh, you know, Levitsky and Blatt and the, 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 yes. the, the writing on on democracies. Who talk about the importance of parties as gatekeepers, and and that's what you that's what 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 he's getting at in the article is that in Britain the party is still playing gatekeeper to some extent. And and I when I think back to like how this developed in the United States, this has been again conspiracy theories have been a, like you said a part of you know human history from the beginning. Um, and it's not that the right is is the left is not immune to it. Right? There's all sorts of of conspiracy theories on the left as well. But it does feel like you can see this pattern of it becoming sort of official doctrine on the right that goes back to my childhood. I mean, I think about, you know, Rush Rush Limbaugh talking about like back to the Clintons and the idea that the Clintons had secretly murdered people. And and, I mean, that that was this idea that was around that would not have been, you know, those sorts of theories would have been around before. But then what you had was Rush Limbaugh who became this kind of, you know, who had this huge audience who was kind of putting a stamp of approval on it, right? And and that sort of thinking kind of feeds its way into the party. And, and now you get to, you know, you go from there to, like by the time, I, you know, I, I think we, we point to Trump, like Trump just unleashes all of this. But, you know, even not that long before Trump, you have, you know, John McCain pushing back against arguments that, you know, Barack Obama was a secret Muslim or whatever, right? Um, But it it was clear that those theories were there and they were, you know, again, they had been sort of endorsed by right wing media. But Trump is, again, he's a media figure. So he comes along and puts the official stamp of approval on. I don't know if it's so much that. I, like 30 years of that sort of talk just kind of fed into you know even the sort of republican leadership thinking about things or if it was this realization of the power of conspiracy theories that Trump sort of unleashes so i don't you know i look at like the ted cruzes and i think well ted cruz is just cynically you know saying going along with these because he wants to win and and i don't know how true of that is of everyone i think it's a little bit of both some people who really believe these things and some people who are just using them to come to power. But the danger is like, once it becomes sort of official party, you know, policy, the nature of conspiracy theories is that they work beautifully towards this, like, you know, demonization of the other, right? Like the other is up to all these nefarious things that you don't know about. And the other in this case are, you know, liberals. Um, the other, the other thing about conspiracy theories is that they can't be disproven, right? No matter what you like, if somebody buys into this, you can't prove them wrong. Like no, no amount of oversight committee and investigation will convince people that, oh, in fact, you know, Democrats aren't secretly using the government to punish Republicans, right? It's just that you haven't, you, you're that that committee was also, you know, in on it or was biased or whatever. So that, that's the danger, right? There's no solution. There's no common ground to be found. And um, when those people are the people who have who, who have the strings of power, then like all of government becomes, you know, paralyzed.
0: It becomes a litmus test of whether you can be part of the party or not. I mean, think about, you know, you think about the Liz Cheneys and and others who have pushed back on like the election being stolen. They're removed from the party. There so there becomes a mind guard, right? You think about the political psychology of all of this. If you don't embrace some of these conspiracy theories, you're you're a rhino. You're not you're not part of the process, right? And so it it once it infiltrates the system, it's hard to it's hard to remove from the the political party. I think last week we were talking about or the previous how long this is going to linger. And I think it's going to linger a long time because you have to get people... Or are willing to push back against it, and and I don't know if you can be elected if you can win a primary without at least dabbling a little bit in this. You know, you've got to uh, you've got to say, well, maybe you don't believe the election was entirely stolen, but but there's something there, and and certainly you have to be able to throw the deep state term around uh, to have some credibility with the audience, and that's I mean that is just really dangerous for a political party to to go down that pathway. So yeah, I, I think it's really really dangerous. It, you know, again, circling back to our first topic and this is what we're going to see out of this select committee it's going to be conspiracy theories it's going to be all of this and and they're going to yeah they're going to run with it i think to the detriment ultimately of the republican party
1: i think you're right and i think i i think the the the, it's worth making a little putting a little emphasis on this idea that it's dangerous because it's it's dangerous from like a governing, governing standpoint, right? Like it's dangerous abuse of power and all sorts of yeah. stuff like that. But I, I think the other part of it is if you've, if you've gone down the road of conspiracy theories, like I said, it, it is because, you know, someone is, again, there, somebody is wrongfully using power. It's it always involves like, you know, a nefarious plot of some sort. And so um, you're right in that, you know, it might be a shrinking portion of America that sort of believes these things. Maybe it's only you know, again thirty-three percent of Americans who are on board, or forty percent. Um, and so you're right; Republican Party is going to face the repercussions eventually. But the the part that I think is worth emphasizing is the extent to which this really is dangerous from like a political violence standpoint. Yeah. Because if you've yeah. convinced a huge chunk of America. That there is some secret plot to, you know, uh, uh, whatever wrongfully take control or to target people like them. That's where you get into the world of, you know, the stuff that I research on religious violence. Right? I mean, that's this yeah. notion, uh, notion of again, the other side is evil, and they have the ability to manipulate things in their favor. The right solution in that situation is violence. And so you've convinced a number of people that, you know, some evil organization is behind the scenes. Then the right thing to do is to you. Use force to to try to correct that. So I, I, yes, I mean it is uh, nonsense. It's it's dangerous at a sort of governing level. But I think this this is part of you know you know piling tinder on on the sort of deny, divisiveness of American politics right now that I think is is only going to make things worse before they get better.
0: Especially when you think about, you know, like groups like QAnon, and then the and the the violence and and the arming and the militias and all of that. That is a really really dangerous and toxic mix. Um, all right, should we should we transition to uh, talk about some international politics? Let's do it. All right. So for our next topic, we're going to look at Japan and specifically at the recent announcement that Japan will double its military spending in the next five years and acquire advanced missiles that can strike the Eurasian mainland. Historically, Japan has kept uh, security spending low due to to its constitutional commitment to avoid war. Yet this week's visit of Japan's prime minister to the Oval Office signaled that the U.S. has fully endorsed Japan's military buildup. Addressing cameras during his meeting with the Japanese prime minister, Biden said, quote, let me be crystal clear. The United States is fully, thoroughly, completely committed to the alliance. Uh, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, framed the alliance and Japan's military buildup as a new version of President Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. He noted, quote, for Reagan, it was peace through American strength. For Biden, it's peace through American and allied strength. Uh, That's really interesting. The two countries issued a joint statement after the meeting uh, saying that uh, the two countries, quote, provided a vision of a modernized alliance posture to prevail in a new era of strategic competition. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told a joint news conference after the meeting, saying, "Quote: We agree that the PRC, China, is the greatest shared strategic challenge that we and our allies and partners face." Unquote. Phil, there are two really important developments here: one, Japan's dramatic military buildup, and two, the United States' enthusiastic support of Japan's actions. What do you make of this?
1: Well, I mean, I think first of all, this this is maybe more than anything else that we've you know talked about on this podcast, an indication of just how much the sort of global arena has shifted, right? So, I mean, this is, you know, again, the, the history is that, you know, after World War II, Japan and Germany both have, you know, extreme limits on their use of the military in in, in response, because essentially we're rewriting their constitutions for them after um, their loss in World War II. And so, I, I mean, that is, you know, it, we're 75, 80 years, later at this point, we're talking about, um, the, the fact that it's taken this long to change things is sort of remarkable, but yeah, the, the fact that Japan is, um, you know, not just increasing, but doubling their, you know, military spending, looking at investing more in sort of offensive as opposed to defensive, you know, capabilities, um more sort of wholeheartedly embracing this sort of joint command structure with the united states i mean this the the main the first thing i think of is I, I go to realism right like this is a this is a recognition of the growth of china and it's not just the growth of china it's the threat of china right so i mean this is where again, realists kind of get at this debate about like, is it our countries, re- you know, responding to power? Or are they responding to threat or whatever? But this is an example where as China does, you know, increasing, you know, increasingly sort of uh, bellicose actions in the in the area as they push the limits on Taiwan, as they're building, you know, islands in the South China Sea, they're pushing back against, you know, the American naval vessels in the, in the area. Um, it, it would be weird if Japan wasn't uncomfortable. Um, I I think what's remarkable is that the, 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 you know, all of North Korea's nuclear missile tests, all the stuff that has happened in the last kind of 15 years there isn't what did this. But it's, you know, as, as China, I mean, certainly Russia as well, but I, as, as China um, gets increasingly aggressive, I think that it is normal for Japan to get uncomfortable. And realism says as they get, would get uncomfortable, they're going to look to sort of strengthen their military, they're going to look to strengthen their own defense, and they're going to look to strengthen ties with the United States, the sort of ally who can help sort. Sort of push back against it. So, I don't. I don't want to be a realist, but when things like this happen, I, I realize sort of the the power of the theory. What, what what's your what are your thoughts as you look yeah, at what's going my on? My mind went to
0: to realism as well. Right, this is classic balance of power politics. So China is rising and behaving in more aggressive ways. Uh, in the region, globally, right? They're, they're exerting their power the way that realism says uh, emerging powers are going to behave. And so then if you're thinking through a realist mindset, how do you counter that? You start to balance against it. So what we've seen Joe Biden do is really reach out to the entire region. So, you know, building alliances with India, building alliances with Australia. Um, and this this one with Japan, arguably maybe the most important. um There's always been a close alliance with the United States, but for much of of sort of recent history, the United States has said, we are going to take the lead when it comes to the military side of it, that we, we will station our troops in Japan. We will be the one balancing. And now what the United States is saying is that you can balance too. Uh, I saw some data, and it kind of depends on how you calculate this, and ultimately it's going to be up to to the Japanese government to to see whether they support the parliament, whether they support this kind of increase, but they, I think, are around the ninth or tenth most military, and that they could jump to number three. You know, know, that biggest military would be the United States, China, and Japan. That is a fundamental altering of the balance of power in Asia. Um, And at the same time, you mentioned Germany. The United States has also moved to a more... Open position on allowing Germany to reassert itself militarily uh, in Europe, and, and all of that makes sense, right? If you're if you're thinking about Germany expanding their military power, it's because you're thinking about a more aggressive Russia if you're thinking about japan increasing it's it's because you know suddenly china but there are going to be implications to all of this right the escalation of this so so in my mind it makes a lot of realist sense this is what biden is doing and actually he's doing a really good job of it it isn't easy to always build these alliances so so he's incredibly effective i worry a little bit about what comes next right i mean this is a a big escalation by Japan. China will certainly respond. I mean, you may be increasing the prospect of conflict by arming everybody to the teeth. That's the one thing that I think gives me a little bit of concern. I I think it's probably the right choice, but I worry about what comes next. It's hard to predict always the future.
1: Yeah, I was. It's a good. It, it's a great illustration of so much in 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 realism and sort of the uncertainty of things. And I mean, the whole idea of realism is is this sort of inherent inability to trust each other, or yeah. you know, the, the sort of uncertainty of things. Because, yeah, I mean, my first thought, well, as you were talking, I was thinking about is this just the reasonable action. If you're Japan, it's, this is a reasonable development, right? Like Japan is not the Japan of, you know, at the end of world war II. it's a very different country, you know, different governmental structure, different economic uh, situation. Um, and the the context is different, right? Like this is the, the world is different than it was um, at the end of world war two. Um, so I was, there's part of me that sees it as just reasonable part of me that sees it as alarmist. But I think that, you know, realists, like you are talking about, like you worry about this as being sort of provocative, but um, like if you're Japan, it, this seems like the most, it would be sort of crazy not to do this, right? If you're Japan and you have one of the largest economies in the world and around you, you see like increasing tensions between China and the US and Taiwan, like increasingly the focus of sort of global politics is drifting away from Europe and towards Asia. Uh, you know, if it were the United States and, and we weren't massively increasing our military spending, people would, you know, think we were, crazy. Right. And so it seems totally reasonable for Japan to do this. That doesn't mean that it won't be interpreted. I mean, that was my question. Do you think that China looks at this and sees it as inflammatory or is this like a deter? I mean, part of the argument is maybe this is a deterrent. Maybe it's not just the U S that's out of you know, the, the critique is that the U.S. needs to get out of China's sphere of influence. Japan has a different argument, right? Japan is there. This is infecting us. And so, uh, you know, maybe it makes China back down a little bit. I, I have a hard time imagining that being the case, but uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it makes them tread more carefully. What What do you think?
0: I I would like to think so, but I'm not so sure. So let's go back to realism, right? So we uh, I just covered realism last week in my class, and we talk. One of the examples we walk through is let's say we all woke up on an island, right? Basically in the state of nature. You know what are students and what are you going to do? And inevitably, when have that conversation, students say, "I'm going to go get a sharp stick to defend myself," right? And so we talk about that, and we say, "Well, if you get a sharp stick, explain to the group why you're doing this." And they the student says, "It's not offensive in nature. I'm purely getting the stick to defend." myself, you don't need to be worried. Well, every other student then says, well, I'm worried about you, so I'm going to get a stick, right? It becomes the security dilemma. Everybody thinks they're acting in their own defense of security, but other actors will see that as aggressive in nature. So so what's going to happen here? I think Japan is doing this, and it, like you said, log, it's a logical development to say, we are worried about the rise of China, so we are going to increase our defense, our military, to protect ourselves. China is going to see this and see it as a provocative act. So then, what are they going to do? They are likely going to escalate their military buildup uh, to protect themselves against uh, a potential aggressive America, the United States, and Japan. Right. So I think you are going to see a, a dangerous escalation in the region. But I don't know how you avoid it because each individual act is rational, right? And you can't say to Japan, "Don't protect yourself. Uh, don't worry about you know what's going on with China." You can't tell the United. States to to just allow China to become a regional hegemon and dictate world affairs in 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 Asia, right? So it's it's just sort of a really dangerous and messy situation where you hope cooler heads prevail at some point. Uh, I don't know. Do you, is there is there a way out of this, or what, what do you think?
1: I you know I don't know. I mean I think I the, I was thinking as you were talking about like you know we had a conversation I feel like a, a number of months ago about whether we're like headed for a new cold war. Yeah. And and that I mean that's that was the argument during the cold war is that you know as the tension escalated like nuclear weapons you know led to this mutually assured destruction this notion that that kept countries from yeah. going too far. The US and the Soviet Union knew that they could destroy each other and so that was this kind of ultimate check it brought quote unquote, peace through uh, deterrence. And, and you know, there's a little bit of that here. Like my, my thought was like, should Japan be a nuclear state? Um, but Japan sort of ultimately is a nuclear state in that, you know, the US is, has its nuclear weapons there and is sort of promised to use them in its defense. And so I, I don't I mean, it's hard to just think of that as like, peace. It, it is sort of stable. I don't know if yeah. that's where we're headed. Um, my fear a little bit as you were talking is, is kind of what happens in the short term, because all of these, uh, all these things that that were announced, the the doubling of, of spending in Japan, the sort of new cooperation between the U S government and the Japanese government in terms of command structure um, will take a number of years to, to happen. So now is the time to be making those changes so that a few years down the road, but it also means there's this little bit of a window of opportunity if you're China and you're thinking about Taiwan or whatever, um, rather than waiting until Japan's military has also, you know, grown in size. And and maybe, you know, maybe there's this part that thinks, well, now's the time to act, right? This is kind of, uh, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not really power transition, but this sort of idea of like, you know, acting before China, before Japan starts to build its military. I, I don't know if that kind of, you know, um, there, there's this sort of short term period of instability that, that comes from an announcement like this as well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're right. You, you hope that, that everyone is able to realize that war is a terrible outcome in this particular situation. But uh, um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen accidentally or through some sort of provocation.
0: That's that's absolutely right. And I guess the, the one good sign is that both the United States and China have been saying the right things about needing more discourse about navigating this relationship. And I think just over the weekend, it was a... I don't know who it was from the Chinese government saying that, but essentially saying that that we we need more conversations. We need to understand that we're going to have competing interests, but we want to navigate that uh, delicately. And and I think that's a good sign, right? That uh, that they're at least having those conversations because it's really easy to sort of slip into the you know the the previous Cold War where the, suddenly it was you know nuclear weapons exploding uh, in, term, in terms of the total number of them. So right, these these early stages matter a lot.
1: I know we should move on. But before we do, I like I, I'm kind of curious, what do you what do you think about that quote of uh, the sort of um, calling Ronald Reagan into this, like re- referencing Reagan's, you know, peace through strength approach? That, that's kind of an interesting reference for the Biden administration to make and, you know, to argue that it's peace through American and allies strength is is a, a tweak on it. But it was kind of odd to hear that. What, what do you think of it?
0: same here. Like I I was kind of surprised that he used that language because that is, is, it's sort of classic cold war rhetoric, right? I mean, Reagan, when he was making those comments, was talking about Russia is the evil other and, and that you have to, you know, the only way to preserve peace is by being the hegemonic power and dominating. And Biden is saying the same thing, except for it's, it's not going to be us alone, that it's going to be us in Japan and South Korea and Australia. Um, it is, it feels a little provocative to me. I mean, what, About you, did you? I'm not sure how comfortable I was with that.
1: I agree. I mean, I this I, th- I think of uh, like the thing that comes to my mind is two level games. Like I, that yeah. feels like a quote that's intended for American audiences. like oh, that's the, great point! Referencing this period of American you know power and the end of the Cold War and Reagan is this you know uh, fondly remembered president and so like uh, you know pointing back to this period of of strength through uh, peace through strength is and I and I think maybe that was a I I don't know but I, my thought is well maybe that's a reference that he's making to sell this policy to Americans. But yes, it's, it is a reference that hits differently for international, uh, listeners than it does for American listeners. And I, and I think about like the stuff you do to try to win over your domestic audience has these implications internationally. And I, and I think you're, you're, you're exactly right. in that if you're China, um, that you don't, you don't, and may, I mean, maybe they wanted to send that message to China, but I, it feels like China hears that very differently, um, than, than, you know, maybe it was intended.
0: That's a, that's a really interesting point, thinking about the two-level games. And maybe yeah, this forces us to sort of get inside the head of the Biden administration, but maybe it suggests that Biden is a little bit further down the road thinking about this as a new Cold War than we think, right? That it's not just, you know, they're not just competitors, that he is now seeing China as the next iteration of the Soviet Union, right? Which is, those there are big implications if you really think this is the next Cold War. So uh, yeah, that's a really interesting way, yeah.
1: Well, and that's a really good point, too. I mean, when we talked about Taiwan, and I mean, Biden has referenced a number of times the idea that we would defend Taiwan and whatever. And we again, we talked a number of uh, a while back about how it's clear that Russia and Ukraine has had a really big impact on Biden. And I think he he's trying to avoid that in Asia. And so, you know, maybe I'm, uh, I'm the one who's misunderstanding. Maybe he very clearly wants to send this message to China of, you know, like a a Cold War type message, because it's clear that he is, I I don't know, he, I think he's wanting to prevent another Ukraine from happening and has been willing to go further than most other American politicians in making the sorts of threats and promises necessary to try to prevent that from happening. So maybe maybe that's maybe that was his intention from the beginning.
0: it's really it's it's so interesting. I, I don't know, but I, I I think you that may be the right right conclusion there, right? This is not an accidental slip of the tongue. Um, you know, sometimes Biden gets ahead of himself. but this when when the you know when you're when it's coming from the national security team, it was something that was thought about, printed out, you know, they considered the implications for all of this. But your question is a really important one. Was it meant for the American audience or is it meant for an international audience? and I, it's probably too early to know. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, let's transition. We're going to wrap up today by reflecting on an article in the Atlantic this week by Steve Maisie, uh, who's a political science professor and covers the Supreme Court for the Economist. Uh, he has watched the court for years and says there has been a noticeable development in this current court. Specifically, they don't seem to like each other. Uh, he writes, "Quote: What I've seen this term on open display inside the courtroom is an obvious departure from the collegiality of years past." Unquote. In the article, he walks through some examples of the very visible tension among the justices. He closes the article, noting, in any other workplace, a manager would be concerned about the impact of such a fractured relationship on the ability of a nine-member team to work together productively. The worry is more urgent when the testy interpersonal dynamics are among members of the nation's highest court. Um, Phil, you've made a career of working with and likely being the cause of disgruntled co-workers. (laughs) Um, What should we make of the fact that members of the Supreme Court appear to not like each other?
1: I, so I, I'm a. I'm sort of torn on this because part yeah. of me thinks uh there's there's no reason they should like each other right I mean it's about sort of different i uh, uh, different philosophies of governing um they're going to disagree with each other it feels very human to not particularly like people who are constantly picking at your arguments or disagreeing with you and so in a lot of ways it feels like it doesn't really matter that much yeah. um but I know that in reality like the 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 the, the at least the the pretense for for a really long time has been that it really is sort of an intellectual engagement, right? Like we can, there is a model for American politics that it feels like it was held up by the court, which is like two people can see the issue totally fundamentally different, engage on the merits of the the issue at hand and, and engage in sort of logical arguments and disagree with each other about the outcome and still, you know, recognize that, Hey, we're still, you know, we totally disagree, but we're, you know, we're, we're people, we get along, right? There's, this idea of it makes me think of uh, of like social capital to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like I, I know people I disagree with, and I recognize they're decent people. Um, there are all these stories about you know Clarence Thomas who knows the name of everybody who works at the court, and so it's like I I, I totally disagree with him politically, but he's like a decent human being or whatever. And so the fact that that's breaking down, I, you know, should maybe be raising you know ringing a, alarm bells. I. I tend to think the reason it's breaking down is that like the the notion, the old notion, this is just me speculating. The old notion was we can disagree, like intellectually have different sort of philosophical approaches to this issue um, and still go home at the end of the day and be friends. And And it feels like we've even talked about it. It feels like some of the conservative members of the of the of the court have sort of broken with the sort of intellectual side of it. And it's become, it feels more partisan. In fact, the article even references that Alito has started making sort of sloppy arguments, right? That they're not particularly crisp. And so If the idea is you're not actually engaging in uh, like a, a, you know, a um, legitimate uh, disagreement where we're like wrestling over the facts and you just have some end that you're trying to get to, then I can see where that would lead to some level of disgruntlement, right? Like we're not playing the same game anymore. You're not playing by the same rules. And so um, I I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the stakes of the issues that are at hand. But um, I I think on a day to day, I don't know that it necessarily matters, but sort of. Of big picture the fact that even the court can't sort of get past these differences should be like a warning to us as a country. what, what do you think? does it does it matter? It feels like they shouldn't necessarily have to like each other, right?
0: No I, I'm torn just like you I'm I'm of two minds on this because you're right. at one point, you could argue that this was the last institution where ideas matter, civility still mattered. Um, it wasn't the ugly Congress. It wasn't a partisan president. I mean, it was just they they were still doing it the way that the founders envisioned, right? Debating ideas. And and so there was something um, redeemable about that. Uh, and that when even partisanship uh, sneaks into the court, it's it's a reflection about the state of the country. So that's and, and that's an argument for saying um, it's a bad development. On the other side, I was thinking today about the friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Scalia. And this is, you know, they wrote and they uh, talked about how they were such good friends. Friends and they traveled the world together and that has always struck me as odd. And Scalia would even say that, you know, I'm here to battle about ideas. I attack ideas, bad ideas, but I don't attack people. Um, and I always thought that's sort of an interesting thing, but it also implies that these ideas have no practical implications, mm. right? That you and I can or I'm sorry, that the, the Supreme Court justices can debate these ideas, but go home and and still be friends and go out to eat and travel the world. But the reality is their decisions have major implications mm. on people's lives, right? I mean, think about just the Dobbs decision. Um, it has it has impact on women's rights. It has impact on all sorts of human rights. I mean, the, the court makes really important decisions. And I don't know if friendship is more important than the policy implications of their decisions. So so maybe when you're getting to a state where the court is drifting in a, what I would argue a dangerous direction, maybe you shouldn't be friends. Maybe you should call out the other side for the arguments and the way in which those arguments are going to hurt people. Um, so I'm always torn to this question of civility. I, I, in general, I like civility. I don't like uncomfortableness. Uh, but I also wonder maybe the court's at a point where a little bit of uncomfortableness with some of the arguments might actually be valued but I'm not I'm not I haven't convinced myself though
1: I, I love it bill I like that idea I mean the yeah. notion that like the court has again this notion that we're engaging we're intellectually different we engage on the merits of the argument and whatnot is uh, I mean there's there's a little bit of a you know um there's a pretense to it there's this like distance this sort of buffer that allows you to go yeah. home at night and feel like oh I just you know I just engaged in a philosophical debate and you know people critique you know academics of doing this sort of stuff but the in at the end of the day the sort of discussions that we have in class don't have the same impact as the Supreme Court right and so the analogy would be really more like you know I don't know Vladimir Putin uh has you know engaged in all sorts of war crimes and and, and you know, a crime of aggression, but then war crimes, potential genocide in Ukraine. You wouldn't say that. Uh, um at the end of the day, like I disagree with what he's done, but he's, he and I were going to go have beers and like get along. Cause we, you know, we disagreed about, about this, but that's separate from, you know, our personal life. That's an extreme metaphor, but it's yeah. the same idea that the, the implications of the decisions you make don't impact you as a, like, don't reflect on you as a person. And yeah, I mean, I think maybe the, the, the fact that you're making these decisions about people's lives, um, should actually come into play, right? It should affect how you think of a person in terms of, Yeah. Yeah, that seems pretty straightforward to me.
0: I mean, I think about like it's 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 a different example, but thinking about like the British Parliament and and you and I have watched British Par- Parliament over the years. And if if our listeners haven't, they should tune it, turn it in sometime. Like it's intense. People are yelling at each other, and there's the sort of these this this intense back and forth. Um, and you're not always worried if you're upsetting the other side because it really is about a, it's you know it's about the ideas and, and and passionately arguing for those ideas. And sometimes it feels like the court is a bit disconnected. From their decisions, right? I mean, the Dobbs decision, Alito's decision really was thinking about whether um, you know, an abortion wasn't a right that was protected in the constitution. It's so far removed from the way in which that policy is going to impact people, which I, I it doesn't matter what is ultimately what that decision would be, but it felt so disconnected. I I think it's okay for other justices to say, like, that's dangerous what you're doing. And um, so I guess I'm sort of convincing myself as I go that I'm I'm okay if they don't like each other, right? I mean, they they still have to work together and, and I think it's important to push back and and sometimes tell somebody their ideas are dangerous.
1: It's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's really interesting. I, so I'm teaching this ethics in war class and, you know, thinking ahead in that class, one of the arguments that comes up in it is that, you know, your responsibility like increases, like as your responsibility, sort of your ethical responsibility increases as you have sort of more power and more control. Yes, right. And so, yes. you know, an individual soldier is not responsible for the war that they are fighting in, but they are responsible for the actions that they themselves take. And so this is an example of where, you know, when you're on the Supreme court, like it's. again, It, it's not like a random selection, right? Like you go through this process, you are choosing to be on the the, the Supreme Court. You are therefore, it, you know, responsible ethically um, for the decisions you make. And, you know, that whatever, you know, very Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility yeah. or whatever. But um, I mean, I think that makes sense. The, the part that I am troubled by, and I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but this is where I go back and forth and I can sort of talk myself in and out of things. I also think that in America, there needs to be, I really do wrestle with with this like there needs to be more of this notion of boy we disagree, yeah. but in a democracy that's what we do we disagree about things and so um, I, I, I'm sort of torn about the need for that the more like acceptance of a differing you know vu- viewpoint but also sort of wrestling with like certain viewpoints. Are really problematic. Yeah. And so how do you find the line for like tolerance for different viewpoints versus which ones are not, um, you know, which ones are you know, sort of cross a line? And it's it's a difficult, difficult question. I, I feel like it's kind of at the heart of a lot of what we're struggling with in, in American democracy right now.
0: And, and and when you separate, so if you separate and say the other side isn't worth talking to anymore, uh, you know, it, it, you, suddenly your mind is shut down, right? And I think that's also dangerous, right? So um, yeah, that that's a, such a really important point. Uh, we've disconnected from the other side so much so that nobody's even really talking with each other. And there's value in having a conversation with somebody you disagree with, right? So so maybe there still is some role for civility, but, uh, but I think the court is at a really unique moment as well. And so it's not surprising that this is happening, but maybe it's not necessarily a good thing.
1: Maybe you could be civil and not like them at the same time. I, I don't know how to. Yeah, spell oh, sure, this.
0: <laughs> absolutely, right. No, you, you certainly could be. You can still have civility and and like not like somebody, right? Re- respect them in their position, but also like disagree in a in a uh, civil, civil way. So,
1: you and I, you and I, haven't had that falling out eight years ago, and we haven't liked each other since. But we still do this every week.
0: If it's oh, it's the money, right? The money the podcast pays keeps us together. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we can wrap up. Phil, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected?
1: Uh, yeah. So go to the webpage at uh, thepoliticslab.com. And again, this week, um, the, the conspiracy theory article that we talked about, the. Um the Supreme court article uh, that we talked about is, is up there The there's a really interesting piece from more than the rocks on Japan that's uh, available. Um, and then uh, yeah, a New York times article on their, on their oversight committee and it's like relation to McCarthyism. So um, those are all there uh, links available that you can read further if you want. And then you can also like us and follow us on Facebook at the politics lab and on Twitter at politics lab pod.
0: That's great, Phil. I will see you next week. Bye bill. Bye Phil.